Hello and welcome to the Modern House podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of design-led estate agency The Modern House. My guest today is one of Britain's greatest living artists, Edmund Duval. Edmund's beautiful porcelain vessels, which he often clusters together in wall-mounted vitrines, are what I'd call perfectly imperfect, with exactly the right amount of patination, indentation and wobble. Edmund's joining me today from his South London studio, and following the usual format for this podcast, I've asked him to pick his three favourite homes from anywhere in the world. His ceramics relate to pretty much everything that this podcast is about, things like space, light and materiality. I'm really looking forward to this one. Hope you enjoy it. So Edmund, as you know, the premise behind this is we ask you to pick your three favourite living spaces from anywhere and any time. Yes. I must admit, I'm, I very much admire the three choices you've made. Oh, that's very nice. Uh, uh, and the first one is, is probably actually to be expected, given that it crosses over into your work as well. But it's the, mm. the Schindler House in West Hollywood, which was designed in 1922 by Rudolf Schindler. I mean, for those who haven't been there, tell us about that house and why it's important. So it really is one of the most extraordinary buildings in the world for me. It's, uh, it's designed by a man who was an architect in exile, and that's something that matters to me. He's a Viennese architect um, who ran away from that extraordinary city to go off and, and, and work with Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, but then he ends up in California... Um, and wants to build a house for himself and for his friends. Uh, and, and what he does is absolutely revolutionary. It's the most extraordinary building um, because it's a, it's, it's a trying out of lots of different things. What you see as you come down this, um, this, this road in Hollywood, which is now very built up, but was in the middle of absolutely nowhere when he built it, what you see is a very modest house. Uh, it's one story, uh, and you see immediately concrete and wood you see these two materials uh, and you can't read the building you come in and you can't understand where you're going you move from one space into another um, and each space is 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 barely a room <laughs> each space has these very beautiful screens um, that, that movable screens in the Japanese manner um, that, that that demarcate an outside space and then another space beyond it so you're in a a house which sort of unfolds one space moving into another moving into another and at every point it's not clear whether you're in a living room or a working room or a kitchen or a bathroom or a bedroom so each space has the possibility of being something else Uh, and the beauty of the house and it is absolutely beautiful is that all the materials are unadorned. The concrete is barely polished. Uh, the wood has been... It's local Californian redwood. It's, it's, it's not been uh, hewn <laughs> beyond the, sort of the, the mildest of, of, of working. Uh, the glass is uh, where there is glass and sometimes there's just spaces to let the air through, um, is, is, is not grand or stained or anything. So all the materials are, are true materials. And it's an experimental house. 
this idea of the truth of materials obviously will well we'll come on to that actually because we'll talk about arts and crafts of course uh, and then it was very much a mantra for the Bauhaus as well I mean what why is the idea of treating material delicately and allowing it to do its natural thing why is that important to you would you say well it's basically the whole of my life, Matt. It's <laughs> important to me. I'm, I'm 55 and a bit, and I've been working with clay for 50 of those 55 years, so since I was a child. And, and so actually what materials do is absolutely my whole life. It's thinking about how little you need to do to a material to, to reveal its its character and this is a a tactile house it's a house that unfolds through haptic discovery through through touch you know you run your hands along the the concrete walls and you understand that material you run your hands along the the wooden beams or, or the bits of inlay in the walls and you understand the grain of the wood so what you're doing at every point is being returned to lots of decisions about how you relate to the world and the choices that that Schindler was making this man with no money no clients at this point but a wife and artistic friends was to try and build a material that that could try out materials and I think that's why it's so exciting so he was trying out a way of living in this very avant-garde way lots of swapping of partners swapping of of uh, ways of living swapping of of ways of of making stuff but trying out materials in, in space and that makes it sculpture but it also makes it very exciting as architecture what's not to love it was built for two families and it, yeah. the idea was that each each of the four had their own studio didn't they and then they could come together in a communal kitchen utility space yeah, but you also had lots of their friends coming, and so you had contemporary dance coming on. You had John Cage living there and trying out uh, music. You had had writers and architects coming and going, and and a lot of them were exiles or emigres. So you had this interesting um, it was a sort of transitional space um, where people were coming and trying things out and then leaving again. And, and so, in, in a very real sense, it, it works as a building, as a, a trying out in public of private space. And would you want to live like that in such a communal way, do you think? Does that appeal to God, you? God, no, absolutely not. No, it's my <laughs> idea of complete hell. But, 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 it's so interesting in terms of ideas. And, and I did this project there a year and a bit ago, trying out sculpture there using Corten steel and using... Uh, gold and using porcelain and working with an amazing uh, musician, Simon Fisher-Turner, who did a sound piece uh, for the building, very much in the spirit of Schindler. And so there's now an album out, (laughs) which was recorded both there in the house and also in different spaces in Vienna. So it's still a kind of testing ground and a a trying out space. It's, It's a good space. You talked about sound. That's obviously very important to you, isn't it? You've spoken about that a lot before. And you said that your porcelain pieces, you feel, have a sound to them, don't you? Well, tell me about that. Well, I'm on some odd spectrum so that when I, I see objects and see vessels in particular, I actually, I actually hear them, not only as 
sort of percussive sounds as rhythms. So when I see vessels in a row, I, I hear them, and I also hear the spaces between them. I hear them as rhythmical objects. But I'm also very interested in how you then put objects in space, so that how objects sound when they're put in a vitrine or in a structure or in a building. If they're put up very high, I've done huge installations high up in buildings, or I've done installations which are below ground, where you walk over them. And in each case, I'm sort of interested in how I sort of feel that the objects have a sonic quality, have a sound in the world. Fascinating. In terms of your own home, how does sound play out there? Is, is sound quite an important part of your own living space as well? Yeah, it is. I mean, I mean I've had a, had a rather odd life in houses because I actually grew up in medieval houses okay. um, next to cathedrals, Lincoln and then Canterbury, incredible, complicated medieval houses with sort of chapels and spiral staircases and towers and things like that. So, but always dreaming, <laughs> dreaming of contemporary houses, of modern houses. And the house that we now live in is 1963. It was actually built for a refugee couple. And the way we live, I mean, I've got three uh, wonderful children. And so there's music happening throughout the house. It's not some Schindler house, aesthetic Schindler house at all. It's, yeah. it's full of noise and full of happy who's got the Sonos system, yeah. who's got the Spotify <laughs> accounts yeah. at that particular moment. But how, how music happens or how sound happens in those different spaces, how we've arranged the objects in the house, it actually does, does mean a lot to me. Yeah, interesting. The Schindler House, it was constructed in a very unusual way as well, wasn't it? It was the tilt and slab method, I think. Yes, I mean, there are wonderful photographs of them creating these concrete slabs on the ground and then with ropes just pulling them up into position. And there's a, that slightly sort of contingent and anxious feeling about whether or not the house would actually survive and stay up, <laughs> which I, I kind of like. It feels quite close to me when I'm making vessels there's a sort of like just about quality to it yeah it just about survives <laughs> and my objects just about get through the kiln yeah and sometimes they don't yeah. and, and i love that because again it's 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 very humane it's very ungrand you know it hasn't got a kind of polished marcel breuer kind of quality to it at all it's, it feels barely barely achieved and that that i love actually Excellent. Okay, let's move on to your second choice, which is Red House in Bexley Heath, uh, which was William Morris's house that he built with Philip Webb in 1860. So tell us about why you've chosen that one. I've got a huge fondness for this house. It's, um, again, it's about trying things out, really. Trying out a new way of, of living with friends, a new way of thinking about family life. It was built in the orchards of Kent. It's now, of course, in deepest suburbia in Bexley Heath. I'm not desperately far from where I live in South London, actually. And why I love this is that on first sight, when you go, you might just think, oh, it's just a conventional Victorian red brick, kind of slightly Gothic villa. But it isn't. It really, really isn't. It's a trying things out. It's an attempt to make a medieval, warm social space 
modern. It's, it's an attempt to try and make a space where you can, you could work with all your friends, you know, people making stained glass, making tapestry, making tiles, making furniture, making art, and try out a kind of collegiate way of, of living. Um, and it's got that, again, that kind of experimental feeling to it that I absolutely love. And I love the fact that it was conceived in a garden as well. It's, Morris was, very good on plants as you would guess looking at his wallpaper looking at his tapestries and he built it in order to plant roses and honeysuckle and jasmine and clematis up the walls he built it in order to have an orchard he built it to, to make a space where you could move in and out indoors and outdoors so that's a bit of a rant actually but i do love it <laughs> it's not a rant it makes total sense i mean it's interesting again because it's about communal living again which you confess you hate the idea of yourself but i think you're right it was very experimental wasn't it and he had his pre-raphaelite friends burn jones and rossetti would come around and and help him create the this this total work of art i suppose which 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 is what the arts and crafts was all about and and again is a precursor to the bauhaus isn't it absolutely and 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 you know i suppose the the thing that that joins both the schindler house and and this much earlier incarnation 1860 it's very very early is making stuff yeah (laughs) you know this is about architecture as as craft as 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 a really hands-on way of thinking with great kindness about what material you really wanted to use the bricks are beautiful uh, the leading in the stained glass is stunning the wood that they use is is well thought through and all those things matter because that is became the arts and crafts movement it became this have nothing in your house which is not you know useful or beautiful they're really trying to think um how can we reset social life and value people who make stuff it's still radical it's always going to be radical because people always try and take the crafts away and say you know they don't have value there they're insignificant they're they're a minor art they're not they're about being a human being it was very much influenced by john ruskin wasn't it this idea that you know the machine age and industrialization was effectively stripping workers of all of their creativity and all of their rights um, and I suppose Morris was interested in in getting back to the idea of craftsmanship, wasn't he? Which is what you talked about. Yeah, and uh, you know some of it's bonkers and all that chivalric stuff. Yeah. is sort of you know enough <laughs> with the Arthurian legends, you know, and the knights. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. Um, but chivalry aside, you know, there's a real, real interest, Morris unpicks medieval tapestries to learn how to do it you know he he takes a page of an illuminating manuscript and learns how to be a calligrapher he takes a a binding and learns how to do binding and at all these moments he's going right back to this idea of of homo faber of of people as makers and you know he makes a table (laughs) terrible round table which no one can move but he's you know he's trying it out he's trying it out and 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 i think there's something completely 
utterly honourable and wonderful about that, trying things out. And it's, it's interesting now, it's, I think it's an interesting moment for the crafts, actually, now. Um, you know, you can't move now for pottery studios on street corners again and people sharing ideas about quilting and embroidery and this that hunger to make is as we get more and more digital that return to making is 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 completely fabulous it's happening everywhere so in terms of your own making to just tell us about that process a moment you're you know we're talking and you're in your studio there uh, it looks like a pretty big space but what 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 happens in there briefly it's a huge space it's an old gun factory in south london which was rebuilt, re-envisioned by architect friends of mine, DSDHA, um, wonderful architects who I've worked with for 25 years. One end of the studio is clay and uh, my wheel and kilns and glazing and testing stuff out. Other materials, steel, corten steel, aluminium, marble, gold, lots of things going on. A huge central space, um, where installations come together, different materials, and then there's also a, a library um, with thousands of <laughs> thousands of books and works in progress and texts and, and things uh, being written and rewritten and written over. So lots of things going on in the studio. It's a kind of rather glorious playpen, really, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. I, th- I think when you started out, you you were. I think a self-confessed disciple of Bernard Leach, weren't you? Yes, absolutely. And obviously now your work has, has changed in something very radically different from that. I mean, I'm sure you're comfortable with this idea, but from that craft tradition into something that's more, you know, sits more in the art world now, doesn't it? Just tell us a, a little bit about that transition. I worked as apprenticed absolutely in the Bernard Leach tradition of functional handmade pots and Japan was very much part of that. I spent a long time being in Japan, training in Japan as well. Um, and then what happened was I slowly began to hold, held my pots together in groups and installations and, and actually then started putting them in buildings. High Cross House down in, Dar- in Darlington oh, yeah. Hall, a great, great modernist house. Bailey Scott's, a great villa up in uh, Blackwell House up in the Lake District. Um, uh, Kettle's Yard in Cambridge. So often bringing my installations into conversation with particular buildings or particular museums, the V&A. And so really moving from, from having single pots somewhere out there, there are lots of very heavy casseroles, <laughs> honey pots circulating slowly around the world, yeah. um, into porcelain, beautiful material, Thinking very much about the Bauhaus, which we've talked about a little bit. Thinking about the, 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 the clarity of the Bauhaus, those beautiful austere pots. And then more latterly, over the last 20 years, working with the art world, you know, art galleries to put work into particular spaces. Working a lot with the new art centre down in Salisbury, who have, of course, these fantastic Stephen Marshall, beautiful buildings but also working with Gagosian in different galleries around the world. So at every time, trying to rethink how these objects can be put together and occupy space. I'm basically, I've always wanted to be an architect. I Have never, you? but I'm a potter. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Next best thing. Next best thing. 
Well, I, I think, I mean, in many ways it isn't the next best thing, but I think the way that you do it is in the sense that you apply pottery to space, as you say, which is, which is qu- quite unusual, I would say. The way that you present them in the vitrines or you relate it to sound, you know, that's an unusual way of looking at pottery. Well, I have to say this, there was a long time when no one could really work out what, what I was doing. And there's a lot of, you know, why would you make porcelain pots and put them around a, a modernist villa or... I had quite a lot of pushback, just sort of complete mystification about it. But it's it's a personal feeling that if you put an object down in the world somewhere, the whole of the world changes, that the energy field changes. And that, that one of the joys about being someone who makes objects, makes things, mobile things, is that they have agency in the world. You put them down and they you can move them around. And it's a very simple but beautiful idea people love moving the things they have around their houses there's real pleasure in bringing different things together a few pebbles and a pot and a plant and a beautiful book and a, a picture and it, it it just it's it's a good thing to do in your own domestic space so that idea of curating your environment like that just tell us about your home briefly i mean do you live with your own pieces as well yeah i, I didn't for years and years and years but more latterly we have yeah. um and so but there's a lot of work by friends around um pictures by gary fabian miller wonderful uh, photographer who uses light um uh, christopher lebrun um lots of painters uh, charlotte verity a great friend of ours so paintings and, and objects by friends and then old furniture right. and when we can afford it aspirational bits of danish furniture like every single other person who will be listening to this podcast yeah. and why not and and very much loving lateral living living in a 60s house with windows that look out into gardens so that's a joy yeah, yeah. so does your home influence your work as well um no <laughs> I mean, I'm very lucky here in this studio to have spaces to try stuff out. And and I'm very lucky to have projects where I'm trying stuff out. So um, home is retreat, luckily. Home is retreat. Okay, excellent. So moving on to your third choice. Tell us about this one. I don't think a lot of people will have come across this building before. So just explain it to us. I'm sorry to say this is a house which has been destroyed, but that's in some ways that's sort of interesting because it's it's indicative of lots of contemporary architecture, 20th century architecture, which has been under threat. I'm a great fan of the 20th century society, patron of it, and which supports architecture which is under threat. So this is a, a house by Kenzo Tange, who is the great 20th century Japanese architect. That's the house he built for himself in 1953. Tange is He's the sort of pivot between uh, traditional Japanese architecture, um, those great spaces of of wood and tatami mat, bamboo mat, uh, and, and, and paper, and and concrete. He's the person who takes up concrete and, and and uses it in contemporary architecture. And he builds the Olympic Park. He builds the Hiroshima Peace Park, which is very very beautiful and special really worth seeing and builds this house for himself and it and it's just stunning because it's it's one of those japanese houses where a bit like the first the schindler house 
the inside and the outside are, are, are permeable. You move in and out and through. And, and what he does is to frame the gardens through these beautiful open spaces, which then become, become walls. And, and he uses concrete stunningly. He's really the, the godfather of Tadeo Ando, who many people will now know and who's much more well-known nowadays. But Tange is there really as the sort of, as the great pivotal Japanese post-war architect. I used to, when I was working in Japan, I used to go and spend lots of time. And there's a beautiful cathedral in Tokyo, which is very, very stunning. I used to go and sit in it sometimes when I was feeling grim <laughs> well a, a bit like the schindler house it, it was it was about flexible living as well wasn't it with sliding walls and wasn't it based on the module of the tatami mat in terms of the interior spaces yeah it, it, it was and and there's something incredibly calming about about that modular system the tatami mat is the size of a person lying down and so there's there's a sort of scale at the humane scale at the heart of it you can sort of understand it even without having to you know count the maths or or read that structure you kind of understand it and uh and so it's a very empathic way of building really and if you think about some of the best post-war british buildings like the span buildings for instance you know um there was so much learnt from from Japanese buildings, how you move from one space to another. So, I, I just I just want everyone to look at these pictures actually because I don't think they know them particularly well. But I just I just love this building. I, I completely agree with you. I must confess it wasn't one that I knew about, but yeah, I, I, I can see where you're coming from. It also reminds me of um, Walter Siegel and his whole self build movement. And again, th- those those self built houses down in southeast London, they have a they have such a cosseting atmosphere about them but i think you're right because they are based on a grid system there's there's something there's something very tangible about that um and and they're they're just a very reassuring place to spend time i I find yeah absolutely and i i think what what's what's interesting about the kind of the way in which people have 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 begun to really value good 60s and 70s architecture in this country and why they look (laughs) with such pleasure at, at, at modern house for instance is that there's something about scale here there's something really really significant um and there's a sort of a modesty bluntly to it which i i think is 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 really valuable and damn it i mean they're very ambitious in putting that as well in saying that that modesty is important. It sounds like it sounds like such a weird way of putting it right around. But actually, to say to say that modesty is a, is a significant humane quality in in architecture is remains really really interesting thing. I, I completely agree. I, I think that, you know one can get caught up in the quest to build the you know the biggest possible volume always. But I actually think that architecture is much more about intimacy than that i mean one of my favorite books is um in praise of shadows which I is love such that book. A, isn't it such <laughs> yes. a brilliant book yeah and he, yeah. He, he you know he talks about how in japanese culture that they have a tradition of light and shade and how mm. um you know a, a, the, the face of a geisha is is white with dark lips and 
um, you know, you've got the mysterious depths of a bowl of miso soup, haven't you? You know, and 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 in their interiors as well, the Japanese have a great um, fascination with darkness as much as light. They have they have nooks and crannies and depths, and that you know they believe that, that darkness throws objects into greater relief. And I mean, that must hugely resonate with you. I'd have thought it, it's hugely significant. And I mean, I, so many of my things I've I've made, I've I've put into shadows. I mean, the dome of the V&A, my there's a huge installation called Signs and Wonders, a hundred feet up in the V&A, which is not lit. It's 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 in shadow, much to the annoyance of lots of people. But that's <laughs> that comes entirely out of the thing that actually you can't see everything all the time. Things come and go. Light changes. Um, you know, you move you move through spaces. Homes aren't art galleries. <laughs> you know, they're they're places you want to you want to move through and catch sight of things and forget about them and recover them and and feel comfortable with them and then be reminded as light changes and so there's that but there's also something really beautiful um which is mentioned again in 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 praise of shadows which is the the beauty of broken things and mended things um and and that for me is also hugely significant that that aged objects and broken objects also have enormous value, um, enormous value. They're, again, they're about us as human beings. In your work, do you ever have broken pieces? We absolutely. And in fact, we've, there's a, a, an image perhaps we could share, which is of a recently shown in Dresden, which was a whole series of very beautiful 18th century plates, Meissen plates, which were damaged in the Second World War, which had been mended with gold uh, lines, kintsugi. And so, yes, the broken and the mended and the passed on are very much part of my, 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 my life. I mean, you're, you're synonymous with this pure white colour, but you've... I mean, I've, I've seen that more recently you've, you've, you've gone into the depths of black. What's happened there? <laughs> oh, well, goodness. Um... Well, I mean, that is in praise of shadows. I very much wanted to see what, what the depth of those black glazes do. And, and it's still, still an ongoing discovery. And so, yes, for the last five years or so, I've been doing more and more and more research and, and making black installations. Um, and um, they work quite powerfully for me. I've been doing a lot of, a lot of work with them. I mean, black is before people in Europe could understand how to make white porcelain. They made black porcelain. And so there's a kind of alchemical feel to it, a sort of trying things out again um, with these glazes. And, and, and I love them. Um, yes, so I'm sometimes taxed. People say, why don't you use colour? Which, I mean, damn it. I mean, white and black? Yeah, I'm yeah, really yeah. going for it. Steady. I'm really going for it here. Yeah, I'm really, are. exactly. Come on. <laughs> And gold, and gold, don't forget the gold. And gold, and gold, and gold, yeah, exactly. Okay, the, the, the last thing I'd like to talk to you about is, is writing. I mean, um, you know, my, my background is writing. I've brandished a quill a little bit myself as well, um, although not on your level. We, excitingly, um, are writing a book with Penguin Life, which is the modern house's rules for living. Um, which Wonderful. Is, which is, yeah, which is all about the... Um, you know the the timeless principles that go into making a home and making a home that supports you psychologically and frankly is an uplifting place to be um mm. 
So I'm faced with the next six to nine months of sitting in front of a computer, hopefully most days, um, trying to put that down onto a Word document. Now, that's obviously a process that you've been through before as well. So I'm just interested about your, you know, your, your great book that you've written, but also actually just when you write generally. What's your process? How do you start? And where do you go? <laughs> Well, I have to say the first book took me seven years and the second book took me five years. So, you know, <laughs> I suppose the first thing to say is that I'm not the quickest of writers. Um, <laughs> so good, good luck, Matt. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it is, writing is gloriously slow. You know, it's, it really is that a, a process of, of, for me, of going back again and again and again and again and, and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And, so it's 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 a bit like it's a bit like making an installation. You know, you make the pots, you put words down, and then you take them away and you move them back, and you come again in the morning. And you, for me, there is a very strong access between the writing and the and the making. So, if if you're writing and making at the same time, how do you break up the day? Do you do that quite formally, or do you do it it's a different thing on each day, or how, how do you do it? No, I'm endlessly moving between the two things. It's very rare that it's not a day when there's some writing and some, some making. What do you need the freshest mindset for? What works best first thing in the morning, out of interest? Well, the joyful thing for me is to sit down at my wheel first thing in the morning, early, 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 before anyone's come into the studio, and put some Bach on or Philip Glass or something into the studio and then make i mean that for me is just the best day ever you know because then i i start with something that i I just know where i am by picking up a piece of clay and making a vessel and that just for me is a joy and nothing beats that not even writing i think that's a great place to stop um, thank you so much, Edmund. I've really enjoyed that. It's fascinating. Thank I've, you very, very I've much. Had, it's been, been, been a tremendous pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this conversation. Loved it. Thank you. Thank you all very much indeed for listening. We've got more really great guests coming up, so please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and you can keep up to date with what we're doing. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we would hugely appreciate a quick review as it helps other people to find us too. You can see photos of all of the houses we talked about today on our website, themodernhouse.com. The producer was Caroline Hughes, and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective.